Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network. We are in a bear market with cryptocurrency. That is an understatement, right? Um, And there is no doubt about that. But how long will it last? I have no idea. However, one day, bull market shall return, just as the dot-coms did after the bubble burst in the late 90s. And then we're going to see the blockchain versions of Amazon and Apple skyrocket in value. That's what I think is going to happen. But in the meantime, you know as well as I do, it is winter. Now, so what do you do in the winter? It's the time where you learn about projects and buy them at a steep discount and then just wait. And the truth is that the vast majority of these projects, these you know cryptocurrencies, will probably never recover. A lot of them will go out of business. But the good ones will come back with a storm. So how do you spend your time during this period, during this winter? You know, if you want to be part of this eventual boom, you spend time now learning. You become part of the conversation. And you can't do that if you don't speak the language. And that's where my guest today really shines. He's one of the best teachers in the blockchain space that I have yet to encounter. His name is Chris Coney. And he will be my guest after these messages. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions, too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Consensus Network is Chris Coney. Now, Chris is a blockchain educator and founder of Cryptoversity and also hosts a podcast called The Cryptoverse. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Buck, thank you for having me, mate. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. So, you know, I haven't had any fellow uh, podcasters on, and then this is kind of gives sort of a broader uh, approach I guess, than a lot of the guests that I've had on previously. So first of all, let's give us some background. I know you're out there uh, in the UK. And, and how did mm-hmm. you how did you find yourself in the uh, digital asset space? And, and when did that happen? <laughs> that was funny. You paused there because you said, how did you find yourself in the blockchain <laughs> space? Which is, is very apt because I honestly came to crypto having done a very deep self-inventory about what the hell I was doing with my life. So I'll give you some context for that. Computer science graduate. I've just been fascinated with computers since I was like knee high to a grasshopper, as my dad would say. The first computer I ever got was like a 486. It was a Packard Bell. So that was my first experience. You know, I used computers for a good five or six years before we first got a dial-up modem. So I saw the birth of the internet. I saw, you know, the whole PC revolution, uh, cartridge-based computer games. My dad actually... He's, he's been self-employed for as long as I can remember. He drove buses for a while and then he set up convenience stores and then he went into, you, you remember VHS tapes, right? Yeah. And that sort of took off. He had a rental store and then when computer games took off, he added 
like computer game rental. So you could rent a cartridge and you know play the game if you liked it, you could buy it, right? So, but that was that was that was all the rage back then. You don't really do that anymore. I don't think rent games. Still rent movies, but you don't rent games anymore. So that was whole part of my whole indoctrination into the tech business and my uh, begins my affinity with the digital world. So it was just it was just in me, and especially yeah. getting into the internet with a 33k modem uh, when uh, Ultra Vista was around and all this other stuff. So I saw all that pre-Amazon, right? And then so because of that background, when I came to like, what am I going to study at university? I was like, I don't know. I don't know why they expect kids to have their whole lives figured out or their careers figured out at that age. Um, but it was precious. I was like, what do I do? So my logic was, I'm going to take a, pro a, a subject I'm interested in, which gives me the best chance of getting a good grade. Because I figure you know, <laughs> a, a good grade and a reasonable subject is going to give me the best springboard, even if I don't go into tech in the end, right? Sure. That was my logic, right? So that's what I did. Um, you know, I kind of... I didn't find university that difficult because of my background. I'd already self-studied a lot of stuff. So, you know, three or four programming modules and all the rest of it. But then the thing happened again, you know, you get to the end of your studies and then this is a very interesting point in life, I think. And of course, at the time I didn't know, I didn't, I wasn't privy to how profound it was, but on reflection, when I reflected on that part of my life, I thought, Hmm, that's the first time when you have to actually make sort of a decision where your life is going to go. Because up until that point, you've sort of got everything, the next steps laid out for you. You yep. go to school and then high school, and then we have college, which is a step before university. So you could say, well, you, you don't have to go to university, but it is a logical next step. Sure. Just the momentum carries you that way, right? Which yeah. is why I did, because I you know, had no alternative and no else to do. But then when you finish your degree, yeah, you can go on to do masters and PhDs, but it's not this it's not as the momentum sort of stops at that point. You're a graduate now, right? And going into the workforce is then, you know, the, the natural thing to happen. But there I am going, okay, okay, I've got this computer science degree, uh, still haven't got my life direction or my career direction figured out. Panic, right? And all I can remember thinking back then, book was, oh no, I'm going to be the last graduate to get a job, right? Because again, everyone's getting jobs and I start reading these statistics like, oh, you know, the economy is pretty good. Uh, 2004, I think it was something like that. So um, only a small percentage of graduates are still un unemployed after three months or whatever it is after leaving uni. And these statistics are rattling around in my head. And I'm like, I don't want to be one of those. I just don't want to be one of the last graduate. <laughs> yeah, right, you know, right. Unemployed. So this, this, I didn't take any time to figure out where I wanted to go in life. I just panicked and it started applying for all, my, all kinds of jobs. You know, hotel manager jobs. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And because I didn't get any of these jobs because... Deep down, I didn't really want any of them, right? So eventually, after six months of doing this and burning through a load of cash, traveling around and, you know, snatching about, I figured, okay, okay, let's just take a chill pill a minute and figure out like a conscious choice here. And then it dawned on me. I'm like, well, in all of this, I figured one day I was going to do what my dad did, self-employed, go and start my own business. And I was like, well, since no one else has given me a job, I may as well give myself one, right? And pull that whole thing forward. So that was it. 22 I was when I uh, went to my high street bank and says, hey, bank manager, let me 36,000 pounds, will you? Which is about $50,000 uh, unsecured because I want to start this here web design business, right? And I said, sure. Right? <laughs> no problem. Right? It's 2005. They were throwing money all over the place. Sure. Right? You know, This is pre-2008 financial crisis, different economy. Yeah. The thing is, at that age, I didn't have the worldly awareness that I now have about the financial system. So that was just the world that I knew. Everything was booming is just what I knew. And you go to the bank, ask for 35,000, 36,000 quid. There you go. 
jobs are good, right? Yeah, yeah. So I took that. That was painful though. Because what I did, and again, this is all hindsight, right? What I did was I took a whole bunch of money and started a business with no life experience, really, and no career experience of any kind. I hadn't had a job anywhere other than working at my dad's computer store, right? Because by this time, he's got a PC store selling computers and repairing them and so on. But that's not really the world of work, right? You'd have to deal with office politics and uh, arrogant bosses or anything like this, promotions and work-life balance. You're working for your dad, so kind of you know easy times. So I struggled mightily because I just I just wasn't equipped. I didn't know how to sell. I didn't know how to do customer service. Didn't know how to run a business. Didn't know how to do do accounts. Didn't know any of this. And it, it dawned on me when I'd started the business, right? And I was like, oh goodness me. So that really was like sink or swim kind of a situation. So I did that for about seven years, like. I originally bought this franchise of this web design company, which probably saved me in a bit because it was like training. Some structure, yeah. Right. What I learned from that is, especially in that case, is that generally speaking, it was true with this one, because the franchise fee was like $30,000, there's actually more money in that for them. So once they've got you as a franchisee, even with a 10% royalty on your gross sales, which is what they charged you after that, it takes them a hell of a long time to make another 30 grand, right? So it's more profitable for them to, to focus their marketing efforts on getting new franchisees rather than your ongoing success. So it was very much like, there's the training, off you go. And I was like, oh no. So I was, I was no better off inside the franchise model, really. So eventually I left that and went independent and then you know, did similar thing, but just without all of the fees and franchise fees and all that kind of stuff. So that was a pretty miserable time that, because I just find it so difficult to sell, to sell. That was just like the hardest yeah. thing for me of an introvert you know you can imagine being kind of a computer science guy much prefer you know the sanctity of code logic and certainty around that and when you've got to go with like have doors slammed in your face and how oh, to just i just hear me so deep yeah <laughs> yeah worst for someone like me it was just the worst career choice ever but i didn't even know that was what i had to do until i had to do it and then i was like now i've got the bank loan to pay back I had to do it so it was excruciating that whole year process i was miserable so it got to the point where I was so miserable doing it um, that I was like, I know I don't know what else to do. I'm just getting to the point where like, not this, I just can't, I just can't do this anymore. Right. And the reason I didn't quit before that was because I had no alternative. Right. It was almost like better than the devil, you know, until it wasn't right. And I was just like, I'm sick. I'm sick of this. Just, just absolute misery. I can't live like this. So this is like 29, 30 years old. So I just, by this time took on a co-director in the board meeting and I said, it came out of my mouth. It was one of those things where you think you say it in your head and you actually say it out loud. <laughs> and I went, Glenn, I don't want to do this anymore. And I went, oh, I just said it. And he went, well, if you don't want to do it anymore, there's no point, is there? And he was like super nice about it. So we did a deal. He bought me out and I bailed. Perfect. First of February, 2013. That was it. I was officially unemployed with, you know, my, my severance money. Yeah. For my equity. So that's where I was. That was the year I discovered Bitcoin. It's, um, that I don't think that's a coincidence, right? Because I wasn't looking for it. I didn't find it, but then I was open. I had, I had no career. So I was open yeah. to everything. And then I started researching this and that and the other. And then did you, did you just put, run into it? Did you just, were you on a forum or something or how, how did, uh, how did it come to you? Interesting. It didn't get my attention right away. I'll be honest, because being in the tech business, always reading the journals and this and that and the other, and you always hear about something like a tip in, 
transformer nanofiber technology that's coming down the pike, right, or something like that. And you go, that looks interesting, but it's so experimental. Most of it you never hear from again until 20 years later, right? Bitcoin seemed like one of those things when I first came across it. I thought, that looks interesting. But then I bumped into it again and again and again. By the sixth time, I'd got enough crumbs to go, hmm, I think I should take this seriously. And then when I turn my attention towards it consciously, down the rabbit hole, there I am. What was it about? What was it about Bitcoin that, um, you know, certainly the tech side I get, but at that point, you know, what was it that that uh, kind of, uh, you know, caused you to get the virus? Sure. So my tech background helped a lot because I was able to appreciate that aspect of Bitcoin. But in a, in this seven year experience where I'm in a struggling, barely treading water, trying to figure out how to make this business successful. That, that spun me off into studying sales training. And then eventually you study like business strategy. And then I start thinking, well, I'm part of this thing called the economy. How does that work? Can I get some leverage there? That leads you into studying the economic system leads me to, and then I, I went completely mad. I was did a bunch of courses on how to trade the stock market, Forex, just to understand that world. Right? So this is all building me. And then I found out federal reserve system, the you know, whole fractional reserve. And I'm like, oh my Lord. So what, what started out as me just trying to solve my problem of, you know, my small business problems, it, I ended up studying the whole economic system. So I was primed in that regard, right? And it seemed like gold was the only answer to another 2008 financial crisis. It was the only thing that semi exists outside the financial system, semi exists outside the financial system. So then when I studied Bitcoin, I was like, oh my goodness me, I have this axiom, which goes... You never quite know what you're being prepared for. And when I ran into Bitcoin, and a lot of people describe this, it was almost like all of these almost unrelated subjects that I'd studied, computer science and uh, game theory, systems theory and economics and all this sort of stuff, it was all, all pointing to a hole that Bitcoin then filled. It connects all of these things together, all things I was interested in. And I was like, oh my goodness, I was actually made for this. Not only made for it, but my whole life has almost been leading up to this point. When I look back at all the experiences, I was like, this is what I was put on this earth to do, to so educate people about crypto. Did you start mining it at that point? or I didn't. No, that didn't actually appeal to me. When I sold my business to my co-director, that's when I did a real deep self-inventory because I'm like, I'm not doing another seven years of that. This time, whatever I throw myself at, it needs to be you know, what I'm designed for. So while I'm figuring that out in 2013, which the end of that process was kind of my key skills are, I've got this little thing on the wall. It says my giftedness zone is like as a professional communicator uh, in the area of technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my giftedness zone. So I figured that out and then I discovered Bitcoin and then I saw the gap in the market was like, well, no one does, understands this thing. Time for me to become a crypto educator, right? Because right. just to met. So is that and when you that. started Cryptoversity and that was uh, in 2013? It was. Wow. Originally, I thought I'd just make one online course. But then I quickly figured out, even though I made a 60-lesson course, I'm like, barely scratched the surface. Right. I did see so, something on there that said it was the, the first uh, first course of its kind, and I was I was intrigued by that. But I didn't realize, 2013, you were way, way ahead of the curve. Right. I yeah. describe Cryptoversity as the world's first online school to teach courses on Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and blockchains. Because it was the first official school dedicated to that subject, you know. 
So you build, you ultimately build um, a a business around something that you believe in, which was Bitcoin. Oh, absolutely. When did you start buying cryptocurrencies? I think it was in 2013. My first Bitcoin purchase, I got it off localbitcoins.com, where you you know you can find a a person to person trader type of thing, and it was three hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, not Which not is a, about my reason. You gotta buy some, right? See how it works. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't go back there. <laughs> you can see it either way. Yeah, that's right. I want to shift a little bit. Um, you know, I've had a rash of Bitcoin maximalists on the show. If you look, you know, who's been on lately? Well, most of them are people who who just believe, you know, Bitcoin is is the project. This or it's right. the coin, and everything else is a shit coin. Right. Um, And I know. (laughs) Right. And, uh, you know, we're of course, we're not here to, um, you know, give financial advice or anything like that. But obviously, uh, you don't really view this space that way. Can you talk about sort of your larger perspective on uh, distributed ledger technology, blockchain, et cetera, and how Bitcoin fits into that compared to, say, other projects? Hmm. Yes. So this is interesting. So the reason I say it the way I say it, which is like cryptoversity teaches Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies and blockchains is that I see it like, you know, like those Russian dolls where you get a big one, you open it up as a smaller one inside, you open that one up and there's an even smaller one that goes all the way down. Right. So that's how I see it. So it's like Bitcoin is a specific project, an example of a cryptocurrency which fits inside the cryptocurrency Russian doll, which fits inside the blockchain Russian doll. But you could actually go one step back from that and say blockchain actually fits into this bigger Russian doll called distributed ledger right. technology. Right. Because you can have a distributed ledger without a blockchain, a la Ripple or many of the other ones like Stellar and so on. Yeah, they're, they're decentralized ledgers, but they're not blockchains, right? right. Blockchains is a specific chain of time-stamped blocks, a block being a list of transactions which lists things in the order they happened and has consensus in the network, right? But like actually Dan Larimer did a talk about this, that there are private applications for these distributed ledgers as well, even to keep honesty within say a corporation. Say if you've got a global corporation, you could have four different departments within that corporation on four different continents running a, a version of the database, a copy of the database so that no one can, even within the organization, cannot corrupt the data. Right? Everything is logged. So if you know who changed what and all four of those departments who are in the same company but really don't you know, talk to each other or have any need to, right, can all keep the data in consensus and prevent, prevent rather uh, internal corruption. So the big bubble, not bubble in terms of financial markets, I mean, the big circle that encircles everything is the DLT stuff, distributed ledger technology. This is like, how do you track ownership of anything and make sure that can't be corrupted? That's basically the fundamental problem that DLT solves. And then more specific applications go down from there into blockchains, hash graphs, you know, uh, DAGs, all this sort of stuff. So let's talk about something that I think I've, I've had this question a few times and I've explained it. I'd love to get your explanation of it is, um, you know, I get these uh, email questions that are, hey, I hear IBM is doing their own ledger. I hear uh, their own cryptocurrency. I hear that uh, Chase is using a blockchain. Well, what's the point then of having, 
you know, an Ethereum, an open source uh, blockchain, if if all of these companies are doing their own pri private blockchains? How do you answer that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. It's a very good question. We are in the melting pot phase where everyone's trying everything, which is fine. So if you think about it, if you are a very powerful corporate player in the old financial system, or even in the old tech space, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable building on a platform that is built by, you know, managed by your peers, right? Other corporations. So like Hedera Hashgraph, have you heard of that one? Oh, yes. Um, okay. Yeah, of course you have. You've interviewed it. Yeah, I'm in the pre-sale. Okay, <laughs> I'm rooting for it. That's, that's <laughs> so they, they are a good example of that. So yeah. versus Ethereum, um, the Hedera Hashgraph, you know, the, the actual mining process, they don't have miners, but the mining equivalent in the Hedera Hashgraph, the Hedera company has, the human beings have, have had applications for miners and they've manually selected blue chip corporations to be the miners. And they've picked like 40 or 41 of them, their council members, as they call them. So they have service level agreements, they have performance criteria and so on. So pros and cons. So the average, the average libertarian isn't going to like that because there's just too much of a strong, you know, there's too much of a human hand in it, but that's okay. Because the beautiful thing about the world we're going into is finally we'll have free choice. And that's why I alluded back to when I was studying the problems of the world economic system, it felt kind of hopeless in the sense that we were all trapped inside this big circle called like the fiat economy. Right. And there was no way out. And if you, if you had power in that system, you could just squeeze everybody else. And the way I see it is that when the Satoshi white paper came out that described Bitcoin, it's um, so I've been drawing my hands here, big circle. And then this little tiny circle bumps up against it, which is almost like an entirely new economic system that is connected to the old one, but not exactly a part of it. Now, the, si the size of the old financial system as a circle is like the size of the sun, and the little tiny circle that is the crypto economy is like a P right now, bumping up against it. But gradually, what we're going to see by people building new crypto systems and by people exchanging value from one system to the other is that the the relative size differences between these two economies, uh, I believe, will come to the point of equilibrium, where you'll be basically have both of them working side by side, right, with liquidity flowing backwards and forwards. But then we'll have absolutely free choice because you can live entirely in the crypto world if you want to, the DLT world. You can live entirely in the fiat world if you want. You can be in both camps, right, based on how the external economy in the world is working, right? So value will be able to flow and then power will be much more difficult to keep hold of, right, by manipulating the system because there's two systems to choose from. Right. So that's really the way I see it going. Right? The other thing, the other way that I have... Um explained this a few times, the idea of, you know, companies just having their own blockchains is it's sort of the difference between, you know, back in, back in the nineties when, uh, you know, the internet came out, a lot of companies started, well, we're just going to do an intranet and we're just going to communicate with one another that way. And so it's a difference between an intranet and an internet for one thing. Um, Mance Harmon also explained this in a different way. Mance Harmon, who's the CEO of Hashgraph, as you know, right. when he was on the sh uh, show, I asked him because, as you know, Hashgraph has the private blockchain, 
and then they have the uh, public blockchain with Hedera that you know the the main net has started. They haven't distributed the tokens. It's like what is what's the purpose, right? What what is the purpose? And I think that what he told me I think made a lot of sense for me in terms of thinking about the company level uh, use of distributed ledger versus the public. He said that the private level would be, you know, which is not Hedera, it's the Hashgraph company, was really focusing on companies that wanted to communicate within their own ecosystem, right? Whether that's, uh, or companies or industries. For example, you take uh, banks or whatever, and being able to communicate with one another. But that Hedera and the public block, or the public uh, ledger, was designed for outfacing businesses where it was required uh, to interface with with the public. So, and in that scenario, that's where you needed the the you know the open source you know staking by you know millions of people, etc. Does that resonate for you? Yes, and uh, well, I'd say more no than yes. I'm not going to say yes or no because that's a stupid answer. So I'm going to say no mm -hmm. <laughs> on this basis. So. Even within a private ecosystem like dark markets, dark pools, right? Those banks don't trust each other. How can you, right? Sure. So they also need, because again, this these consensus systems, it's the Byzantine generals problem. It's like, how do you how do you trust a communication line that isn't trustworthy, right? How do you trust other parties that you have no relationship with? How do you make sure the message gets there and is authentic? When you receive one, how do you know the message is authentic, right? And all that kind of stuff. So that would work. You could have a dark pool, right? Of five banks who just operate a little private one like that. Yeah. But if they want to be trusted in the outside world, well, they don't have to run that on the public blockchain. This, this is the thing. You can link them together. The amount of information that you publish to the public blockchain could just be a single transaction per day, which communicates the state of your private ledger at the end of the day, which means at any point in the future, you can prove what the state of your private ledger was at that point in time by rehashing that net, you know, the network state. And if it matches what you publish to the Bitcoin blockchain, you know, you're telling the truth, right? So um, I think this is going to be huge because that's what maybe Ethereum will end up being, right? It will be the, the ultimate record of all of these, you know, side chains, if you want to call that private chains, whatever. And the the Ethereum public chain, which is ownerless, is truly decentralized, um, and it has no you know particular power structure, will be the the most trusted network that everyone can almost back up the state of their private chains to should they ever need to audit themselves, right? Or well for, to for example, or in the case of Chase well, uh, mm -hmm. I think Chase is building their own, you know, quote unquote blockchain, but it's really, they're building something on top of the Ethereum network. Is, isn't that correct? Well, sort of. This is this is a little bit confusing. So these open source networks. So Ethereum is both a network and a software, right? Mm -hmm. same, as, same as Bitcoin is both a software and a network. So Ethereum is open source code, which you can download today and launch your own ethereum network right you have to call it something else but it will essentially be the ethereum network so there are things like the ethereum enterprise alliance which their intention is to establish a completely new ethereum based network 
which uses the same technology as the Ethereum that we know, but is an entirely different distributed ledger altogether with an entirely different set of data. So um, that's a little bit confusing to the average, um, what should we call them? The average observer of the crypto space is when you hear, oh, they're building on Ethereum, mm, that needs breaking down. Are they building on the Ethereum public blockchain that we know, or are they using the Ethereum technology to establish their own private network? Yeah, they're just sort of creating their own little fork. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you see that with, for example, we know Worldwide Asset Exchange, Wax, uh, also did mm -hmm. that with EOS. They did. They are doing. They're working uh, it. Right. So let's speaking of EOS, this is something I want to talk to you about because I know that you and I both have an interest in EOS. And we haven't really t touched on this project on, on this uh, program, okay. but I've mentioned it. Explain EOS, first of all, and tell me why you like it. Okay. First thing, no one really knows what EOS stands for. The creator kind of left it up to you to yeah. decide. You know, people say it's, it's Ethereum on steroids. People or say it's Ethereum, uh, all kinds of things, right? Ethereum operating system. I've heard that one. Right. Eternal operating system, whatever. Right. But operating system is a good word. So the biggest difference between Ethereum and EOS is when you're building an app for Ethereum, it's almost like buying a circuit board and then writing machine code to run on that circuitry. That's hard. That was the, uh, it was called computer systems was the module at university where they taught us assembly code. It's one level of computer programming abstracted from binary. So it's, it's got, you know, the alphabet to do commands, but it's almost binary. It's horrible. I hated that module. I barely passed it because I hated it so much. Horrible. Never going to use assembly language again. So Ethereum apps at the moment are notoriously difficult to create for that reason. So we don't have the Windows or the iOS equivalent, right? So as soon as, say, iOS came along, well, the number of developers that were able to build apps for your iPhone just exploded because the iOS, the operating system, provided a layer of insulation in between the machine and the human. That's what EOS is designed to be. Rather than you having to talk to the blockchain, which is essentially the machinery, EOS is like Windows. It sits on top of that. So you can just get on and write your app, and EOS will handle all of the communication with the machine, if you like, right? So that's basically what EOS is. It's a blockchain operating system that makes it easier to build apps. Why is it Why is it more, because one of the big things uh, we talk about is maybe you can explain why the advantages of an EOS in terms of uh, scalability. Mm-hmm, sure. So the people throw words around in the crypto space like centralized and decentralized. Now, they are... They are set in the past tense, like centralized, decentralized, as if the process is complete. It's not, right? So on either end, there is a 100% centralized system. On the other end, there is a completely decentralized system. I don't think either of those actually exists, right? Even in, even like Facebook and Google and all these, they're not entirely centralized because they've got servers all over the shop. So nothing is entirely centralized. And there's different types of centralization as well. Yes, it's a single company, but it's not a single server and it's not a single service and that kind of stuff. So it's a spectrum from totally centralized to totally decentralized. When it comes to these blockchain networks, you can move the slider. This is in the design phase of these networks. On paper, you can go, okay, let's play around with this slider, moving it up the centralized end, up the decentralized end. And what you find is 
the further towards the centralized end you put it, you get better performance, right? But you also lose trust, right? Because there's, it's, it's, um, becomes easier to control. That's the problem with centralization. It's centralization of power and control. So in an entirely centralized system, you've got one guy that's got access to everything that can change anything. Not good. On the decentralized end, everyone in the network has a totally equal distributed uh, vote in the network, power in the network, wealth in the network. That doesn't exist either. When you put it down that end, it's incredibly slow. It's like it almost grinds to a halt because to get consensus in a network like that, you'd have to get every machine to synchronize before you could move on. Which right? is Bitcoin. So, no, Bitcoin is an entirely decentralized, right? You could, you could just, it just wouldn't work. So Bitcoin is cut sort of not all the way down the decentralized end entirely because no such system exists. But you've got to make a choice about where on this scale you build. So Ethereum decided, well, we can let anyone be a miner, right? And uh, that gives you the Ethereum network that we've got today with a limit of about 15 transactions a second. The reason Bitcoin is so slow, quote unquote, at three transactions a second, and uh, it does a block every 10 minutes, that was an intentional design choice. Satoshi Nakamoto intentionally slowed the Bitcoin network down so there was sufficient time for everyone to come to consensus and for the whole network to synchronize before one of those blocks was set in stone. Because once a Bitcoin block is in there, the chance of that being reversed drops to zero pretty damn quickly, right? So that's the trade-off though. You've got with Bitcoin, mega immutability and Ethereum, mega almost complete immutability, but it costs you on the performance end. So along comes Dan Larimer, who's looking at this and is like, it's not going to work. Right. In the real world, if we are going to build apps, right, any kind of apps that are going to equal the performance of the apps that most people are used to. And again, we need consumer adoption. That's that's really where the money is. And they're not going to stand for this kind of performance. Right. 15 second transactions and, and paying a fee and all this sort of stuff. It's like it's not going to work. And that's what I admire about Dan Laramie He's, is he starts with the market just like a true entrepreneur and then reverse engineers it to the tech rather than the other way around. Let's build this network and then see what, you know, who we can sell it to or what we can build on it, which is why Bitcoin and Ethereum are struggling today because it's gone back to front instead of front to back. So Dan Laram was like, okay, what we're going to do is he invented this delegated proof of stake system where you have um, a limited number of miners, right? And in, in his experimentation with his previous projects like BitShares, when he left it to a free market vote about how many you know, block producers or how many miners there should be, um, there was 101, I think, originally in BitShares. But the optimal number, based on actual real-world empirical experience, was about 15, I think it was. So in EOS, you have, you have 21, right, to give some leeway there. Uh, you have 21 block producers that are mining the network at any one time. And then you have an outer circle that are all the backups. And the block producers or the miners in EOS are elected by the token holders. So unlike Bitcoin and Ethereum, where it's basically whoever's got the most money to buy a bunch of mining hardware and who can ever find the cheapest electricity, you know, gets the mining rewards. And you can do that anonymously. In EOS, you can't really do that because you have the campaign to be elected as a block producer. So you have to say, this is who we are. 
this is our hardware this is why we're trustworthy this is why we're a better block producer than anyone else and so on and it's liquid democracy because the eos vote happens every three minutes so if you're a block producer and you're earning rewards for creating blocks and securing the network if your performance falls off if you get caught in a scandal three minutes you could be you know replaced by someone else who got elected so it keeps everyone on their toes the benefit of cutting down the number of miners that have to reach consensus down to 21 is you get massive performance gains and when i say massive i mean so far the record for a for on-chain transactions on eos is 4,000 transactions a second right and it's only been out a few months so it still needs optimizing but even now today eos can do 4,000 transactions a second and when i say bitcoin can do three and, and ethereum could do 15. so that's the kind of performance gains you get by pulling this slider more towards the centralized end because dan larimer said it's not decentralization we're after and people go mad when they hear that it's true though what we're going for is censorship resistance high performance you know usable applications and if that means we have to pull the slider a bit further down towards centralization we only need enough decentralization for immutability privacy and performance to take it to market so i think eos has this great trade-off between centralization and decentralization to be the best of all worlds yeah yeah no and and it's funny that you know you you and i talked about that once uh, you were kind enough to have me on your show and um mm -hmm. i think this is something that i think maybe there is so much ideology in this space and um the thing is those are those are the really you know the really really smart uh computer scientists who are doing are also very ideological based you know and and that's where the bitcoin maximalists are for the most part but the the fundamental problem as i see in these situations is again uh, people out there who are adopting this technology they don't care about decentralization i mean they don't even know what that means Right. People, all these people on Facebook, they know that Facebook is stealing their data. But for the most part, they don't seem to care. What they care about is how quickly something works and how it improves their lives. And, and I think that what, what we're talking about a little bit is exactly that. Whether, you know, we talked about XRP on your show with Ripple. Um, same thing. There are, you know, people who are very anti-Ripple. And yeah, if you are a purist in, uh, you know, about decentralization and all that then then yeah absolutely but in reality the banks are using it it has a tremendous utility so it's probably going to be something of value let me back up a little bit because i think we've have not before i've uh, i've not actually addressed in the most simplistic terms there are these con consensus mechanisms that we call uh, proof of stake and proof of work mm-hmm you being the eloquent uh, educator that you are, have you figured, how do you explain this to somebody who doesn't really know this world very well? So the purpose of, we call them consensus mechanisms. That's just a fancy word for how do you get all the computer systems to agree on what's the state of the network? And when I say the state of the network, it's like, how do we get, how do we get everyone on the network to agree what everyone's account balance is, right? Because if you can't do that, you can spend the same money twice and the whole system falls apart right? Mm -hmm. These these networks allow you to do something that's both digital and scarce. Never before was that possible. Because before Bitcoin, you could just copy and paste the digital money as many times as you like, and it loses its value. 
but with a consensus network that everyone agrees, this is my account balance, this is your account balance. And then when I send a book, a book, everyone agrees that just happened, right? And then if you want to game the system, you have to somehow strong arm everybody in the network into buying into your corruption. It's impossible. You can't communicate with that many people and so on. So that just doesn't really work. So that's what a consensus mechanism is designed to do. How you approach this though, there are several different schools of thought. So proof is literally like proof in a court case, but in computer systems, you don't have to argue it. You just use encryption because mathematics, right? A proof is like, you know, I can prove that two plus two equals four because the rules of mathematics say that the plus sign adds these two things together and everyone gets the same answer, right? So you can prove what the answer to two plus two is. And everyone that runs that formula should get exactly the same answer, always should be the case in every case without exception. That's the beauty of mathematics, right? It's objective language. So sweet. So that's proof, a cryptographic proof as we call it. Can you prove something mathematically and could someone else repeat it perfectly? Yes. So that's great. So proof of work, right? So this is like you are proof you did some work. The Bennett, the uh, the what proof of work does in Bitcoin is this blockchain thing. So every ten minutes, a new block is added to the Bitcoin blockchain, which is like now we're going to scoop up all these transactions that were submitted in the last ten minutes, and we're going to confirm them by adding them to the distributed ledger, right? So they're officially those transactions happened, and everyone agrees, right? Most of the time in any 10 minute block, there are more transactions submitted that could fit in a block. So someone has to decide, you know, gets this little bowl and picks out a bowl full of transactions from the from this pool waiting to be confirmed, but not not like the entire pool won't fit in the bowl, right? Which is a new block. So someone has to decide which ones go in the bowl for this 10 minutes. And that's the winning miner gets to decide, right? How do you decide who the winning miner is, right? Well, you use proof of work. So proof of work works like a lottery. So imagine if you just did like the, the national lottery like you have in any country, right? Everyone buys a ticket, you wait, you randomly draw numbers, and then whoever matches the jackpot numbers, right, they get to decide. So you do this with computers by having your mining machine uh, basically guess what the winning lottery numbers are. So the Bitcoin software generates the winning numbers basically and hides them, right? Itself is autonomous. So no one in the world knows what it is. Only the Bitcoin software knows, it generates them, encrypts them, hides them, right? And it says, right, miners, guess what the winning numbers are, right? And they all guess. And they can make as many guesses as they want, but they need really powerful computers to make as many guesses as they can as fast as possible. Because it's a complex math problem, basically, right? That they're they trying to get the answer to. Numbers, basically, right? That's all they're doing? It's the random numbers? Because I was always under the impression that it was more, you know, essentially... Uh, you know, tough, tough uh, math problems that these computers were. Technically, yes, but you yeah. don't really have to think about it like that. What what they're technically trying to do is generate. Okay, do you, do you want a technical definition? Yeah, or not? I I do I do. Just okay, you know, other people may not want it, but I want one. That's fine. So in in cryptography, you have something called a hash function, which is a mathematical formula where you can put any kind of data in one end, but you cannot predict what the hash will be. So the hash is the thing that pops out the other end. Right, so it's like uh, if you're cooking a hash, you could throw in breakfast potatoes and a bit of, you know, ham and this, and, and you make a like a hash. Or in England, we have a corned beef hash, for example. It's just a mishmash of stuff, right? So that's like how have hash function works. You throw a lot of stuff in a pan. You're not quite sure what it's going to be when it's finished, but you throw it in there nonetheless. 
and you don't know what it is until you've finished, right? So that's how a hash function works. You can hash anything. I can take a screenshot of this call. I can hash the recording of this call because it's just data, right? Just ones and zeros in a particular sequence. You run that through a hash function and a, a hash comes out the other end, which is a, a long string of letters and numbers. It's in hexadecimal. Mm -hmm. It's A to F and a zero to nine, right? Those, that's the, the character set. So you can hash anything you want, right? Anything. You hash a song, hash a, you know, hash an image, hash a logo, if you want to copyright it, for example. The benefit of doing that is that in future, if I have the hash of that song, say, and I hashed it back in 2009, in 2019, I can say, look, you run that MP3 file, the song, through this hash function, and I bet you this is the output. You do it, you compare the hashes, boom. That proves that you know that was the song I hashed back in 2009. I own the copyright, for example, right? So in Bitcoin, it uses a hash function called SHA-256, S-H-A-256. So it's 256-bit encryption. So what the miners are looking for, any, any of you can look at this. If you go to btc.com, it's actually a mining pool, and you can actually see the winning hash from any given Bitcoin block. So what we're looking for right now is an output to the Bitcoin hash function that has a certain number of zeros at the beginning. Now, what you don't know at the beginning of any round of mining, you don't know what input will generate an output with 10 or 11 zeros on the beginning. You just don't know because that's how hash functions work. So you just make arbitrary guesses. You just throw all kinds of data into the hash function, see if a number comes out the other end with 10 zeros at the beginning. If it doesn't, you try again, right? That's the mining system. That's proof of work, right? right. So every, all the Bitcoin miners around the world are racing thousands, trillions, and trillions of guesses per second to try and be the first one to find a nonce. It's called in mathematics, nonce. Right. Nonce is that output, that hash output with a certain number of zeros on the beginning. If you find it, you announce it to everybody and say, this was the input that generated the output. Everyone can then check it because you tell them what to put in, right? You say, this is what I put in to get the nonce. All the other miners run that through the hash function. Ah, Chris, you did get it because they can all verify it. Right. That's proof. And the, winner, and the winner gets some Bitcoin, right? 12 and a half Bitcoin. Yep. And then the other uh, part of this that I think it's important to just point out is that computers that are guessing, you know, millions of times per second is, is Chris, that's where all the energy output is because we hear about proof of work that's and right. energy and that's everything. Right. So right. on the other hand, then there's proof of stake. Now, this is a totally different thing right now. So now in general, we're talking about, okay, you know, for example, I have, uh, I own EOS and I have staked it. What does that mean for me? Just to tie up the proof of work bit. When I find that number, that's proof I did the work. Because the only way I could have got that number with the number of zeros on the beginning is if I did a ton of work. Right. I mean, computer work, right? So that's how everyone knows. It's like you you were either like the luckiest guy in the world. <laughs> the first thing, it's just so unlikely because these numbers are astronomically huge. Right. So but the problem is you need tons of expensive hardware and they, you know, tons of electricity to run these processes to make all these guesses, right? So you're like, okay, how else can we do this? You know, how else can we decide um, in a fair way who gets to add the next block to the chain? Now that's an important job 
because that person decides which transactions get confirmed next, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to pick somebody, right? Right, because we want all these transactions in order. We don't want everyone adding transactions at the same time to the official chain because we need consensus. We need to pick someone you get to decide, right? And it doesn't want to be the same person every time. So proof of stake, it's a similar thing. Proof of stake. So what you have to prove in a proof of stake system is that you have a stake in the network, which in um, in cryptocurrency world means you own a bunch of tokens, right? So you've you've got something at stake, economic value. You probably bought or earned those tokens somehow, and um, you 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 lock those tokens up. That's what it means to stake, right? And instead of instead of selecting the winning miner based on who did the most hashes and found the nonce in a proof of stake system, you basically pick someone at random, right? Uh, based on all the all the tokens that are staked, you be- basically pick a token at random out of the millions that are staked to say, who owns that token? And Buck goes, it's me. You go, right, Buck, you're the, you're the winning miner. You get to decide on the next block, right? So, and then we do it again, right? Everyone decides to stake and pick another token. Who owns that? Uh, Chris owns that token, right? You get, you're the winning miner this, this round. Now that requires no computation power at all. Nowhere, nowhere near as much as proof of work because you don't do any computation, right? The winning miner is picked based on how much you have at stake. So the way you increase your chances of winning a proof of work game is you buy more hardware, you make more guesses, you burn more electricity, make more guesses, right? In a proof of stake system, you stake more coins, right? If I own 10% of all the tokens, if any of those tokens get picked as the winning token, I get to decide on the next block. And if I get to decide the next block, I get the reward, right? The newly created tokens. So the problem with proof of stake is generally the rich get richer because if I've got 10% of the tokens, I'm more often than not going to be picked as the winning miner. I'm going to be issued with new tokens. If I hold them, I now own like 10.1% of them. Gives me more chance of winning, and it's kind of a right, right. So, you know the the proof of work people uh, often cite the fact they they always always say that um, the proof of stake is less secure. Is that true in your view? For the reason I just stated, which is you can you can essentially buy the vote, and what I mean by that is while the crypto economy is its own system. It, it's not disconnected from the existing financial system. Meaning, if you generate a hell of a lot of value in the old financial system, or you've managed to accrue billions of dollars by other means, you can transfer that value into the crypto space, right? So say a brand new proof of stake network launches, you could use a whole bunch of that economic activity. Like you could take a billion of those dollars, buy up like half the token supply or something, and then you know have a disproportionate control over the network. What protects against that, though, to be fair, is that if you went out onto the open market and started buying, you know, tokens in a proof of stake system with the intention of acquiring a billion dollars worth, well, the price would grow exponentially because of your own purchasing, right? The first token you buy would be at the market price, but then you would be pushing the price up every consecutive token that you purchased. You follow me? Yes. So while technically 
at the market price of say $2 in EOS, you could buy like, you know, 2 billion of them for, for $4 billion or whatever. And it would never happen because there isn't, there isn't 4 billion EOS tokens for sale at $2. There's only a few on the order book, right? That are for sale at $2. And then the next lot you'll have to buy at $3 and then $5 and $10 and $100. So you'll just burn for all your cash and you'll end up with a fraction of the tokens you thought you would. So that's somewhat of a protection, you know? Interesting. So this is, uh, so there are other, there are other um, proof of stake things. I know Ethereum is talking about potentially going to proof of stake as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the other, the other way I guess you, you can protect against this is having a very, very large market cap, right? For I mean, so presumably you make it so it's virtually impossible for someone to own, you know, so much of the network. Yes. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, because I think, and I know Mance, uh, talking about him about Hashgraph, and I know that's not blockchain at all. And quite honestly, I don't really understand the gossip protocol and everything related to it. But I do know that that was one of the reasons that they wanted these, you know, they wanted these um, Hedera tokens staked with these large companies for a period of time until market cap caught up. Yes. They're, they're intentionally starting off more centralized so they can, they can prevent it sort of becoming too chaotic in the beginning when it's, when it's just finding its feet, they, they're basically going to strong arm it by putting very strong boundaries in place to stabilize the system early on. And this is how smart they are. They're just super smart because they've looked at, they've looked at these networks that just explode into the free market and then, abject chaos right and it just it just doesn't develop because yeah great free market anarchy blah blah but in real the real world it just after the initial burst of innovation it kind of gets stuck like where bitcoin has got stuck so they are going to gradually seed the market with the tokens right gradually over time so that it, just for in, the interest of stability really i think that's a smart move because i think in long I do too, and I, I've talked to the, it's. It's interesting because some people have such strong feelings about Hashgraph, yeah. but when I look at the way they're approaching it, with as you described, I think very well, an increased uh, decentralization over time. It's a very, very smart way to do it, and a lot of people don't like the fact that there's a patent on the code, but it is also, you know, anybody can build on it. They don't. They're not requiring anybody to pay them or any, even tell them about it. They're just saying, don't fork. And um, that's actually the purpose of the patent. When I asked Mance about that, it's more of a defensive patent than anything. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think I think that's actually very very smart. And we're looking right now at the ecosystem right now, and the forks are hurting. They're they're hurting this market at large, in my view. I mean, if you look at people at least yeah yeah i mean i can't tell you how many times i mean i just you know i've been listening to you know listen to random shows and stuff and you hear the mainstream guys one of their main arguments against um against this technology especially when they look at bitcoin they say well yeah bitcoin had 21 million max but now they've got all these forks and there's bitcoin cash and there's bitcoin you know and that fork (laughs) to abc and sv and they missed the point yeah but it's not bitcoin Right, they're called. They have Bitcoin in the name. That's where the sort of similarity. It's not an inflation of the Bitcoin token supply, which is yeah. I can't believe people make that mistake. Well, they do, and I think that fundamentally, though, if we are looking at, we're hoping for appreciation in this market. Mm-hmm. We have to get some clarity, you know, for smart money around that. 
And I think I think it's a smart move. I mean, to you know, yeah, okay, fine. Maybe you're giving up some of the the uh, true open source nature of of this thing. But again, what makes sense? What's gonna What's gonna give enterprise confidence rather than you know just being you know part of this anarchy and um, saying this is you know that appeals to a lot of people on an ideological level. It's just not terribly practical. So absolutely, that's back to the design principles of the system. Right. There are always trade-offs. Bitcoin and Ethereum are not perfect. They don't. They don't score ten out of ten on all of the traits of of uh, these technology networks. Not by a long shot. Yeah. Performance is like in the toilet. Yeah. Right. Be fine. Be be uber decentralized if you want to, but you're going to be stuck with three transactions a second. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to innovate on top of that, right? Because the the base layer just you know won't scale beyond that which is why they're building second layers and things like that. Well, and, and to that to that point, too, I think that when you look at these different protocols, whether that's the uh, Bitcoin uh, blockchain, um, you look at Ethereum or EOS, what we're really, that's, that's the groundwork. You know, that's the underlying framework. And ultimately what we're looking for is people's ability to build businesses, applications on top of that. And so... Problems. Right, right. So that's really what this is. I mean, talk about an area that's completely in its infancy, right? I mean, this is literally, we're waiting for decentralized applications. The only, you know, uh, apart from Wax Token, I don't know a blockchain that's doing a whole lot. So, okay. So let's, let's talk about a couple of like, to make it obvious, you, you really want to go to the, to the extreme, it's like okay. So Satoshi Nakamoto invents Bitcoin. Why, right? Well, because in the in the genesis block of, of the Bitcoin network, uh, he hashed the the front page headline from the Times newspaper from two thousand nine, which was like it's from the UK. It was like Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. So to, Satoshi hashed that headline into the very first Bitcoin block. So clearly communicating to everybody what Bitcoin was for, right? It was a new monetary system that wasn't controlled by a central bank that had a completely transparent, predictable monetary policy that you could see out to the next century, not to the next quarter if Fed's going to raise rates or lower rates or, you know, whatever. Because really, well, the central banks have got like two tools. They've got like interest rates, inflation of the currency supply. That's it. Right. They can create currency or destroy it raise interest rates or lower it. That's it. Right? And, and actually they have they have no long-term view because it's just impossible to predict the future, right? Right. Bitcoin gives us a ground state. This is how many Bitcoins will exist ever. This is the issuance rate. These are the times when they're going to be issued. Go nuts, right? Right. So that was that was the, the problem Bitcoin solves, right? Peer-to-peer digital cash. Right. You said that you don't know a whole lot of blockchains doing a lot. Right. And they need to solve real world problems. Here's another one. Gambling yep. seems to be like on the cutting edge. Why is that such a huge thing? Well, because there's been so many scandals with online casinos. Yeah. Right? Tipping the odds in their favor because they're they're opaque. Mm-hmm. You, know? you don't know. Even in Vegas, right? Yes, yes, yes. Nevada Gambling Commission comes in and expect inspects the tables. Oh great, another third party organization they have to trust. 
right? That they're not, you know, they're not just rubber stamping it. Yes, this card shuffler is fair. Get out of here, right? Yeah. Get right out. Don't believe, you know, believe it or don't believe it. It's just not trustless, is it? Still requires trust in the Nevada Gaming Commission, right? Don't want that. Don't want that at all. I want to be able to verify it for myself, which is why on Ethereum and on EOS, the the online casinos are like the most popular. Right, right, right. Because you know, if you roll the dice, right, it's fair. Provably yeah. fair. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's huge for people. Well, listen, Chris, this has been uh, really fun for me. Um, this has been a great conversation. Tell us a little bit, a little bit more uh, before we go. I want people to know about Cryptoversity, how that works, and you know the other information you put out in terms of your YouTube channel and your podcast. So I've just launched what I'm calling Cryptoversity 2.0, which is a complete overhaul of the platform. So a new technology platform, new set of courses, new. Uh, whole new thing. So now how it works is very simple. It's more like Netflix for crypto education, where <laughs> there's just one monthly tuition fee. That's it. Get access to everything, including the private chat server, but with all of the uh, with all the students. So you can ask me questions and all that kind of stuff. It's just much simpler. You know, you just sign up, pay monthly tuition, cancel anytime, get access to all the courses, eat all, all you can eat. When you've had enough, cancel, go your own way. Right, easy peasy. So that's that's that. Um, I've got a new affiliate program. So if people want to help me promote crypto education, uh, it pays a passive income in Bitcoin. So you can only get paid in Bitcoin, by the way. I only pay in Bitcoin, which sorts out the banking issues. So if you're in any one of the 190 countries in the world, if I have 190 countries of affiliates to pay, don't matter to me. It's just a bunch of Bitcoin addresses, right? So that's also me trying to get the Bitcoin out there. Yeah. So that's why I do that. Well, make sure to send me the uh, the the link. I so would. if somebody wants, to, wants me to get a commission on that, then I... They can use the show notes, but if you don't want to, I don't. That's fine yeah, too. Absolutely. Yeah, because the, the, the student pays the same. It's just the money I would otherwise give to big advertising corporations, and right. instead I'm independent promoters. Just again, I'm doing that on purpose because I'm doing everything I possibly can to help this revolution. And giving fiat currency to Google is not is not what the one. That is not the one at all. I'd much rather buy Bitcoin from Coinbase and distribute it to independent promoters who believe in this. Right? Do you have to pay with uh, Bitcoin? For cryptoversity? Oh no, no, don't no, no, no. You pay with a credit card, PayPal, all the normal stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, got it. And then for the brand new people to crypto, we, you can actually follow Book's affiliate link for this. But if you're still in the why crypto phase, I've put together this three-part video series, which is free. It's called "How the Crypto Revolution Is Bigger Than the Internet," and it'll take you through like setting up your first Bitcoin wallet, how to buy your first Bitcoin, how to spend your Bitcoin on Amazon for a big old discount. Um, the three C's of crypto, yeah, blah, 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 right? So um, you can go through that absolutely free. And at the end of it, the fourth video is like, do you want to sign up as a student? So check out the uh, books affiliate link in the show notes if you want to check that out, or you can just go straight to the courses if you wish. So that's that. If you want to follow my ongoing news and commentary, uh, just go to YouTube and type in the cryptoverse, as in crypto universe, and, uh, and you'll find me. Fantastic. Again, Chris, thanks uh, so much for being on Consensus Network today. Folks, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Be right back. Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word 
and get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222-QRP-BOOK, one word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. Uh, welcome back to the show, everyone. First of all, I want to encourage those of you who are interested in diving deep to check out Chris's Cryptoversity course. You can find a link to that at consensusnetwork.io. Um, as you can tell, he's a very, very good teacher, and he's a good guy to learn from. Go to consensusnetwork.io. You can also find a bunch of tutorials there that are totally free that we've done to try to get you involved uh, in the space if you're still kind of thinking about it. Now, the other thing you can do at Consensus Network is actually write me uh, some questions uh, or you can leave a voicemail there, or you can simply email info at consensusnetwork.io. Now, so after all these weeks, because we took a few weeks off, there were actually no questions submitted for me to answer. And so I'm actually not surprised. I think it, the interest in cryptocurrency right now is very low. It's it's human psychology, for better or for worse. When Bitcoin was trading at $20,000, everyone wanted in, you know, Everyone wanted to know uh, everything about cryptocurrency and about investing in different projects, etc. And everyone uh, in the podcast space was booming. And you look at out there right now, a lot of them just haven't even released an episode in months and months and months. Now, why? Well, because Bitcoin is, you know, it's trading under $4,000 right now. All coins are down like 95%. The interest is just dried up. The psychological interest is dried up from you know most people out there. So right now is a good time to learn. Um, is it a good time to buy? Well, maybe it is if you don't need the money for a while. The problem is that we don't know how long this bear market will actually last. So does it make sense for you to consider shifting your attention and resources and current income to other investments right now? Maybe. I kind of like the way, you know, Tyler Jenks has talked about this, you know, and I asked him, you know, well, weren't you going to be afraid if you, of missing out on the bear market and he said, well, or on the, on the bull market? And he said, you know, uh, we won't miss out on the bull market. You know, we may not pick up quite as much of the upside because we get in a little late, but we're not going to miss the bull market. That's the kind of thinking that I think is important in this time, um, uh, this time in place right now. You know, since I launched this podcast in September, I have to tell you, I've been religious about putting out two episodes per week. And right now, though, given the fact that, you know, it seems like uh, there isn't as much going on right now. It's winter. Uh, there are, you know, bits and pieces here. I think we're going to stop necessarily doing this on a, a, a complete regular basis Things are moving slowly, so Consensus Network's going to shift right now into uh, more of a hibernative state. In other words, we're going to slow things down. We're going to shift to a more periodic schedule during this winter. And when there are things to talk about, we'll talk about them. When we have good guests and things are happening, we'll talk about them. But we won't just automatically have shows for a period of time. I think there's other things to think about. Uh, in the meantime, make sure that you subscribe to the show so that when when we do have new episodes, and again, it may be once every couple weeks or whatever, that they'll pop up on your screen in real time. But you'll know that we're doing shows that are actually, you know, that are, are meaningful, like this one that we just did with Chris. 
Also, um, I would encourage you, if you don't, to listen to my other podcast, Wealth Formula, if you're not already doing so. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that kind of investing, where you're investing for cash flow and investing in real estate, et cetera, it may not be as sexy, but going back to fundamentals and investing in real assets is always a good thing to do, especially when times get tough. Anyway, that is it for me this week on Consensus Network. Uh, This is Buck Joffrey signing off. 